You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Off Script, American Theater's uh, live chat and now podcast about all things theatrical around the country. Uh, I'm Rob Weiner Kent, pronouns he, him. I'm the editor in chief of American Theater, and I'm here with. I'm J.R. Pierce, associate editor of American Theater. And I'm coming to you from uh, back in Queens, uh, the land of the Mass Beth and Rockaway. Uh, broadcasting from my bedroom, basically. Uh, although the photo behind me, which is relevant today, today's today's guest, is uh, in Ashland, Oregon. It's one of my favorite places, the Elizabethan Theater there, and that is the home of the Shasta, Tacoma, and Lakawa Nations. Jerry, you are you are coming to us as your photo tells us. Yes, um, uh, from Chicago, which is on the land of the Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria. Awesome. Well, this is the September 10th edition, our last edition before our fall season preview. Uh, you know, when we started to plan a season preview, it was a couple months ago and it was before the Delta variant kind of kicked us all back on our heels and made us worry again about, about theater production. But it's not stopping a lot of theaters from announcing seasons, whether it's in-person, virtual, masked, vaxxed. Um, there is a season to report, again, with an asterisk and with some question marks, and we're going to write about those. But we're very excited about it. That's coming out more or less the week of September 20th. You can watch for that. Our next off script, we'll be talking all about the season preview, what 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 we've been through, but also what is ahead for the theater field. Um, and I just want to say a plug here, uh, TCG member theaters are gonna have a giant listing of all the seasons, much like we had back in the back of the magazine, back in the day, or if you remember the TCG theater profiles on TCG site, that will now be on American theater, americantheater.org a complete listing of all the stuff that people have planned for the coming season, all the TCG member theaters. And I, I mentioned TCG member theaters because you too can be members of TCG to support our work, our journalistic work, our advocacy work, the grant making we do for the field. Um, we rely totally on your support. So that's a little plug getting that out of the way. Um, we've had a slightly slower week uh, of posting this week, and I'm just going to laid on the just be personal laid on the table um it's uh, the last week before my kids go back to school in new york public schools and uh it's been full-time full-time uh child care which has been great but also taxing so that's part of the reason we have a small staff and that's one of the reasons why they haven't seen as many uh features lots of news uh to report but a couple of features that we did we have run that i want to mention uh some sort of essays and book excerpts. Um, one was a beautiful essay by Finnegan Crookemeyer, who's a Tasmanian Australian uh, playwright of plays for theater for young audiences. One of the best uh, around um, and very, um, he's, he writes challenging plays for kids. And uh, he wrote a piece for us many years ago about why are we afraid uh, of plays that, that about fear and about challenging things for kids. Um, and his new essay is about 
is a, based on a speech he gave right before the pandemic started um, at the Imaginate Conference in Edinburgh. And um, I don't want to do, I can't do it justice in the summary, but it's a lot about the ways that, uh, the ways that theater creates empathy among young audiences in all ages and sort of hope for the characters on stage is a model for how we can think about hope, especially in this moment, uh, as we're reemerging again with an asterisk from the pandemic. Um, and I, I highly recommend it. He uses some fairy tale analogies, but the way he writes about young people uh, is just beautiful and perceptive. And I really think actually has application for all of us and the way we approach life and what, what's ahead. So I really highly recommend it. It's called Hope is a Trail of Breadcrumbs. Highly recommend that excerpt or that, that speech. A book excerpt from uh, Alexis um, Green's new bio biography of Emily Mann, the director, former artistic director of uh, McCarter's Theater Center and a, and a wonderful playwright, uh, theater maker herself. It's a book excerpt from the chapter very relevant to American theater. The very first play we published back in 1985 was Execution of Justice, Emily Mann's pathbreaking documentary theater piece about the trial of Dan White the guy who shot uh, uh, George Moscone and Harvey Milk. Uh, I just got the old copy out and read the play. It's an amazing play. Um, and this piece, uh, this excerpt talks about the creation of that. The Eureka Theater, you might've heard of that from Angels in America. The theater started by Tony, uh, not Tony Kushner, start, started by Tony Ticcone and Oscar Eustace. Before Angels, there was Execution of Justice and they commissioned her to write a piece about this devastating thing that had happened in their city and kind of in the in the vein of joint stock company and others. Anyway, that's a wonderful excerpt to look at. Finally, the other excerpt we have is from a, a UK writer, Dan Hutton, uh, a young director and theater maker and dramaturg educator. Uh, uh, his book is called Towards a Civic Theater. And the piece is uh, an advocate, you know, just thinking about public parks and the analogy that you know, public parks are free to the public, but that's because they're funded. Um, and there's really no access barriers to speak of, except maybe hours and uh, certain behavior you can't do there. Uh, and he's basically, basically the point is, why is theater, which in the UK is obviously more publicly funded than here, why is theater different? Why are there so many access barriers? These are questions, of course, that are not new, but he has a, a compelling uh, piece raising these questions. I think it's some of the response that we've got to the piece is like, well, we don't have funding here. Why are we even talking about this? I think we need to keep talking about this. Uh, it's a it's a question that keeps keeps needing to be raised. Um, uh, let's see. And finally, uh, I'll mention that we have a you know the anniversary of 9/11 is a uh, a big is a big one this year. 20 years. I look back and found. The pieces that were the first pieces we wrote about it at American Theater back in 2001, November 2001 is the first one. We were a monthly magazine then. That's the first time we could get a piece in there. And Trav SD wrote a wonderful sort of panoramic look at all the ways theaters have responded from Broadway all the way to regional theaters and uh, all over the country. Some that went on that night, actually September 11th, they actually performed. Others that canceled and why and how and what what the outlook looked like for theater and theater funding. It's some eerie parallels to the way people feel now about the crisis and what's ahead. Um, but it's an interesting snapshot of the time. And then there's a new piece we just put up about, I knew that LaShawn's, the, the great musical theater 
star. Um, I knew that her husband, Calvin Gooding, had died. I think he was at work at Cantor Fitzgerald. He was in one of the towers. And that she's spoken about that and how hard that was for her. I did not know that about eight months later, she performed at a reunion concert of Once on This Island um, and got through it and to a standing ovation. Again, it sounds a lot like the kinds of responses we're hearing about Passover and other, other plays that are going up. People just so emotional to see theater again. So anyway, this, this is a piece not by her, but by someone who was at that concert and how much it meant to her and how it helped her. This is a woman who like lived right near the, the financial district um, and had to move out for months and was a big Broadway fan. Anyway, it's, 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 a, it's a lovely piece that comes at 9-11 from a, a different angle. The biggest piece we've run though, I would say, I think will have the most impact. Jerry, you wanna tell us about that piece? We just posted it today. Yeah, uh, we had uh, Rosie Brownlow Culkin write a piece about theater internships. And it's a very, a very thorough piece, I think to say the least. Uh, based off of a survey conducted by Lift the Curtain, which is a group of activists uh, in theater. And they had, at the time when Rosie was writing at the very least, I know they're still collecting responses, but they had 1,600 current and former interns talking about over 400 institutions about their, their internship experiences, like whether they got paid, what kind of hours were they working, all of that. And I think Rosie does a great job looking at the pay and lack thereof that internships have seen historically, as well as if some of these internships can even be qualified as an internship and asking the question of like, are these positions actually educational and internship experiences or are they being used to simply replace staff positions that are, are not able to be paid? Um, so, yeah, it's it's one of those pieces that was a pretty pretty hard gut punch for me. I think Rob probably felt the same when he first read it. Uh, it hits it hits pretty hard just reading through the testimonials and hearing about just how how far away the internships programs in the industry have gotten from from what I think we we would all want them to be the educational and paid experiences that they can and should be. So uh, definitely definitely encourage reading that piece and uh, taking some time to sit with that. Yeah, it's a long overdue discussion that that we hear bubbling up. And, and as she talks about just the kind of thing people talk about, like, oh, yeah, I went through that and sort of, you know, I don't want to make a, a, a rough, too bad of analogy to like the kind of stories we heard about Scott Rudin and bullying like that. But it's the kind of thing people would talk about and sort of commiserate like, yeah, that's just how it is. And it's like, it really doesn't need to be that way, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, there are big questions that we've talked about, JR, and we'll probably write more about this. What, did, what would this mean for a field, which is, in some cases, there are festivals whose entire model is built on uh, a pretty low-paid internships. And they've, they've, some of them had increased their internship uh, compensation over the years in response to pressure, and it was getting better. But there was still, you know, it just needs to be examined, the whole thing. Um, yeah. So that's a hard-hitting piece that I think we should definitely take a look at. Um, Another piece we ran this week that got a lot of response uh, was, a, was a news piece. We, we announced leadership changes uh, at the executive level um, at, at theaters all over the country. And one of the biggest theaters in the country, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, announced a leadership change. No, artistic director Nataki Garrett is not leaving the company. She's still the artistic director, but the leadership is now going to 
uh, include, along to, with Evren Achik and the uh, associate artistic director, two other artistic, artistic directors, or associate artistic directors, Scarlett Kim and May Anteo. Um, so we're so honored and excited to have with us today, Nataki Garrett, the artistic director of Oregon Chase Professor. We'll talk about that leadership change and talk about what's going on on the other side of the country uh, um, at one of the leading theaters in the nation. Nataki? Hi, everybody. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? <laughs> Not bad. Thanks for making time for this. I really, uh, I've, I've talked to you on the phone a few times. I know JR has as well, but and we met in person all too briefly, not long after you got the position. Um, and I just wanted to start with talking a little bit about you got the position and, and you took over in 2019, I believe, and had about a year before COVID was, is that about right? Did you have time to find your feet and feel like I'm really in charge now before the curtain came down? Yeah, kind of, not really. So okay. um, I, I started at OSF in April of 2019. Okay. Um, with a little bit of a transition with Bill. So my official start was, I think, August 1st, uh, mm. 2019. Um, and then, you know, we, we went about the business of, of trying to, to produce a, the 2020 season that uh, Bill and his team had planned. Um, and then I was, you know, grateful that I didn't have to do season planning for the, the coming year. Um, and then six days into, we opened on March 6th, six days into that season, uh, we had to shut everybody, everything down and send everybody home and uh, refund, um, you know, millions of dollars in tickets and, um, you know, start this slow slog that the entire industry has been in um, with this COVID uh, pandemic crisis. Wow. I, you know, I, I, I didn't, I hadn't, I knew this, but I hadn't clocked the fact that you started in August. A lot of theaters, of course, run on a sort of school year, fall to spring season. But of course, Oregon Shakes runs uh, on a, you know, a calendar year season. So you would, I, I didn't clock that you had basically just started the season when it shut down. Um, yeah, we had really literally just opened. And what was interesting is, you know, the, because of the, the climate crisis that's happening here in the West, um, many members of my team were looking ahead at this coming crisis. So I remember maybe about a month before, um, you know, the numbers were, were growing in Wuhan, China. And um, my director of production, Alice Holden, came to me and said, hey, we're analyzing what it would mean if, if something like that happened here. And I, I remember looking at her, you know, like she had nine heads, like, what are you talking, what are you talking about? Well, it's because they, they've had to do so much um, climate, I'm sorry, um, crisis response, they're, they're, they were keyed towards it. They knew what, that they had to start thinking about it in advance. So by the time, um, you know, we had to close, we already had a few plans in place, you know, um, across the organization. Um, and not that it was an easy, like, response, but, you know, at least we did, I didn't have to convince the organization that we were in this um, slow nosedive towards the earth. Um, I, I got to work with people who were already prepared to, um, to shift um, in response to this crisis. And the first thing, of course, was safety, you know. Right, right. You, know, so you, you alluded to, and we could just mention the, set, the, the, the theater behind me, the Elizabethan Theater. We were talking before the, before the show today that um, the climate crisis you alluded to is the fires in Rogue Valley, uh, uh, which... The last time I visited that theater, 
to see Head Over Heels. That was some years ago. I didn't get to see it because there was, you know, a fire fire smoke, condition. Smoke cancellation, smoke, oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, smoke cancellation. And you were just telling us that the show that's up there now, Fannie Lou Hamer, mm-hmm. uh, I forget the whole title, um, is only has only been able to go up, what, four times in the last five weeks, you said? Yeah, it's about four times in the last five weeks. Um, wow. It's uh, uh, Fannie, The Life and Music of Fannie Lou Hamer by right. Cheryl okay. L. West. Yeah. And uh, we opened in July. And of course, we opened to this beautiful, you know, we opened in our Elizabethan. We, we got the clearance to be able to perform in that space. Um, and I think the beginning of like the last week in July is when we, when we the first first smoke came. Um, wow. And it seems like it's just taken, you know, it's and this is a so smoke is a part of the climate here. Yeah. Um, so smoke, there's always been smoke in this valley. It comes every single year. Um, there's some sort of ecological rebalancing thing that the smoke does with the trees here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just uh, it's just be- becoming increasingly worse because of the climate crisis. And so yeah. we have fires in, in almost every direction, not necessarily close to where we are. But, you know, we got smoke from the Dixie Fire in California, and then there's, wow. you know, smoke from the fires that are to the north of us, smoke from Idaho, smoke from Montana, you know, that stuff is all coming in. And then we had a, a major fire here in um, in the Klamath, Klamath Forest. So wow. um, all of that stuff just sort of descends into the valley and, um, you know, it's, it's ashes in the air and you, you're breathing um, air that was that's worse than uh, LA when I when I moved there 20 years ago. So wow, yeah, it's it's quite a it's tough, you know. Um, but we're pivoting. Uh, we, we, the way that we set up our season this year was to be to sort of take smoke into consideration. So we were already prepared for um, you know what we, our response to to, to COVID, um, and that of course became the most important thing. But then we had to also uh, make sure that we were prepared. If we did have to shut down for a number of weeks, we wanted to make sure that we were fiscally re- prepared, that we were um, prepared in terms of safety, that the kind of show that we put up, the one this one person show that was originally being performed by Ife Butler and uh, um, Greta Oglesby is now uh, in town waiting to go on. Okay. Um, uh, if we can open again, it'll, uh, <laughs> Greta will, will uh, finally have her opening here. Um, uh, but we set it up so that we could um, manage ourselves through what is becoming uh, an annual crisis at OSF. Yeah. You know, it's a, yeah. a part of the way that we produce now. So I wanted to, again, I don't want to stick on, on, on grim things, but it has been a, a tough year. And I want to just look back at the past year in terms of, you know, how did your staff fare? Did, were there furloughs? And what contingencies and alternatives did you pursue uh, uh, and probably are still pursuing. You to talk a little bit about that before we talk about the exciting new things. So a few things, so the, the dominoes were, um, you know, COVID shut down. We laid off 500 people, about 90% of the staff. Um, OSF is, is a major employer here in, in town. So if you can imagine laying off 500 people, 5,000 people are affected it locally and then probably about 20,000 people across the valley. Um, that's the ripple effect. Um, uh, and then I went about the business of trying to raise money because we were giving back, you know, the resource for I mean, people bought whole entire seasons of tickets. And, you know, it was, it was uh, really a struggle. Um, I got the PPP loan that sustained us for a little while. Uh, we started to focus on um, 
our uh, relationships with our top 1% donors. And this was the trick. The tricky thing that happened for me is uh, my development team said, oh, this is going to work. These people are going to give. They always give. They give in crisis. They give because they love OSF. But when right. they started to talk to the people, they they were not in the in thinking about giving to OSF. They were thinking about giving to food banks and, and housing shelters and, you know, and, and health care. And it was an election year, you know, and they had all the reasons and really good reasons why they yeah. why they decided not to give to OSF in the way that we needed them to. You know, nobody took their resource back from OSF, but in the way that, you know, they had responded in the past because it was a worldwide crisis, not just happening to OSF. So I had to pivot right away. Um, I started working with a group of uh, theaters, a, a group of uh, arts organizations in, um, in um, uh, Oregon called the Anchor Arts Group. And it's the ballet, the opera, Portland Center Stage, you know, and, and two museums. We were talking about how we were going to advocate for uh, maybe some of the CARES Act resource. We were able to do that, securing $8 million, 4.7 of which came to OSF. Um, and we were the sort of anchor for that request. Um, and th that CARES Act funding money, money came through the state of Oregon and then to us. Um, and we were able to anchor what everybody else needed because unlike some of our other theaters who are very necessary in their districts or you know, in their neighborhoods where their theaters are, we have a town that is sustained by the $120 million uh, annual economic um, resource that we give to the, or the, the town because people come, because of the tourists uh, that come to, uh, to Ashland and the Rogue Valley. So um, we, we kind of had something else. The thing that I learned in that um, was after talking to, you know, Merkley and Bonamici and Wyden's office, you know, was that everybody um, comes to OSF. So, you know, Cliff Bintz, you know, um, re Republicans come to OSF. It's important. It's an important part of, of Oregon. And when I, my conversations with the governor, she was like, I'm, I'm going to make sure that, that, that I can help you in any way I can to help sustain that organization. Okay, good. I understood that we were the buttress for this, we're an anchor in, this, in the southern region of the state. Um, and also, you know, um, you know, we have, we're the third largest theater in the Bay Area, you know, so it's important to a few people that we were sustained. I took some of that um, with me when we started the, um, uh, the, um, there's, we have a, a coalition of nonprofit theaters and uh, that started uh, because I read an article in the New York Times that said if, you know, Oscar Eustace and Maria Goyanis and um, Joe Hodge and um, uh, Audrey McDonald and a few other people came together uh, and went on up to Capitol Hill, they might be able to convince the government to give um, the theater industry some resource to help bring us back. And so the next day I called Maria up and said, hey, Maria Goyanis, you know, you're on this list. Can we get started? And uh, basically sort of took what we learned from uh, um, trying to get that CARES Act money. I took that and we started having conversations with um, people across the industry, people who are already doing uh, advocacy and lobbying. We hired um, Arnold and Porter uh, to lobby uh, with a group, a coalition of, uh, of theaters. And, um, and we were able to 
uh, participate with the advocacy that was already happening towards the Save Our Stages uh, grant, which now has become the SVOG grant. Um, and so, you know, we were with Broadway League and, and NEVA and, um, and other, other organizations that participated. I think that, that, um, that uh, bill was written by, uh, by NEVA. And so we participated to help make sure we were calling our senators and, you know, organizing ourselves to make sure that, um, that uh, our representatives on the Hill recognized how important the industry was, but in particular, nonprofit professional theaters, um, uh, which could have been left out. And I don't, none of us would have remained open if we were left out of that. I think it's important to note how, how incredibly important um, that work is that we're doing. We're still doing advocacy work through the um, uh, nonprofit theater Alliance. And uh, we're still pushing um, to, to make sure that, you know, we have access to all kinds of, of resource now that we've started something we want to keep moving yeah and and kind of speaking of all of that that you went through and especially thinking about the financial impact of it one of one of the things that i've been tracking has been what people have been doing digitally um, and virtually with with theater productions and one of the big changes was oregon shakespeare festival releasing O and having that platform and so i'm curious like as you, you talk about kind of the financial ramifications and like all of that you went through, did O wind up, like, as you look back on its impact, did it wind up helping at all in that sense? Oh yeah. So uh, O was not born out of the the crisis. Um, uh, We were already thinking about um, um, how to create a digital arm. It was something that I had proposed when I applied for the job, Hmm. that OSF is actually one of the few theaters that I felt really could and should have a digital arm. We're a nationally recognized theater. You know, we have people who come from around the globe um, to come and visit our theater. Um, but it was really born out of a conversation that I had with one of our patrons who lives in Palo Alto and they were older and they were not, they said, oh, we, we can't get up there as often as possible. And we're not as mobile as we once were. And we're worried that we're gonna lose our connection. And I was like, well, what if we like had a digital platform that you could, you know, see the shows live and, you know, dreaming out loud with somebody. and. Um, so we started and, and there were people um, who were already employed at OSF who were also thinking about a digital platform. So we all kind of, we were um, a perfect storm, if you will. We weren't going to uh, release O until, you know, now. I think we were thinking about doing it in 2021. And at the top of the pandemic, we, you know, we were like, well, we should, we should probably try to do something to maintain our connection to our constituency. We have 70,000, you know, people who buy $350,000 um, uh, worth of tickets, you know, or, I'm sorry, 350,000 tickets a year. So um, it's a large group of people to lose. Um, and so we launched, oh, you know, thinking, let's just throw things in it and see if people are interested. And at least there's a way for people to remain connected to OSF, you know? Um, and there were a couple of new productions and new ideas, panels, and, you know, a, a piece called We Are Story and, you know, all kinds of ways to, for, for people to engage. And it was really like a question, like, is this something, you know, do, does it, is it important or necessary? And what we learned very quickly is, um, you know, people were hungry to be connected to what we were doing. And then we learned that there were people who had never 
really connected to OSF that became connected. What I love about the O is it's like putting a door in everybody's hand. You know, you can access it on your phone and um, you can um, uh, witness uh, uh, transgender non-binary artists and you can uh, listen to conversations with, uh, with um, artists, leading, leading artists of color and you can, um, you know, see a little bit of history and um, you can watch some, you can stream some, some shows that, um, that uh, are a part of the archives. And, you know, there were all kinds of things that we could throw in there to give people just something, something to connect to. Um, and, and it's been, it's been widely successful, you know, a million minutes, um, a month and, you know, 10,000 views a week. And, you know, people are, are checking in with what we're doing. Um, and it also led me to, um, moved towards a new staffing model because uh, with the fundraising, my head being completely in the fundraising side, um, uh, I, I, knew, I knew that I wanted to shift my leadership structure anyway, but I, I, I knew through the work that we did with O that I needed a leadership structure that, that allowed for somebody to really focus on uh, what I'm calling innovation and strategy. Um, and, uh, and then over the course of that, I started to really think about um, instead of having a focus on literary, which I think literary is really important to a theater, um, but I needed something that could umbrella literary and include the kind of work that might go on on, oh, the kind of work that might go on our stages that sort of covers everything. So I just launched a new leadership model um, that includes three associate artistic director positions, um, innovation and strategy, new work and artistic programming. And I just hired my two new associate artistic directors. So now I have this beautiful triumvirate and along with Alice Holden, who is my director of production, I have Scarlett Kim as my associate artistic director of innovation and strategy, Mian Tio as my associate artistic director of new work. And they join Everett Achikin, who has been with me for the last two years as the um, associate artistic director of artistic programming. Um, what's important to me about these positions is that artist is in the center of the of the um, of the title, um, and with Evan, it's like art. It's like artist and artistic, right? So um, uh, that that we center the artist in in this work, and we center it by bringing artists into these um, these uh, leadership positions. Artists who can help bring back this idea of the artist and the artist's voice, the artist process and, and, um, and the work that we do in order to make sure that the artist has the resources to, to do the work. Um, and so that's the big shift that OSF is making right now. Yeah, and, and speaking of that shift, I know we've seen a lot of different news items come through our inboxes on, on people shifting how they're doing leadership structures. So I'm kind of curious, how you landed on this one in particular versus like a co-artistic director or something rotating, like how did you land on this particular leadership structure? Well, okay, so there's a couple of things about OSF that sort of sets us apart from the theaters that can do this sort of flattened leadership mm -hmm. model. But I think the most important thing is that, you know, we were a $44 million theater uh, or budgeted uh, theater. And when you're, when you have, when you're at that resource level, the thing that's the clearest is that both the artistic director and the executive director are spending the bulk of their time raising money. That's what you do when, you're, when your budget is that high. Um, so uh, there, there is 
you know, the, the obvious that I have to really focus on making sure that we have the resource and that I have a, a cohesive vision for the, for the whole entire rest of the organization to follow. But really what I mostly am doing is umbrellaing uh, the work of this, this amazing staff so that they can actually bring the fire you know, to this work that we're doing. Um, so uh, those other kinds of like flattened hierarchies or you know, those kinds of things are, are really great for other, other kinds of theaters, but I need a core group of people who can get this thing moving and get us moving out of the sort of mechanistic ways in which we do theater. Um, and I know I can't do that. I'll give you an example of, of, of my uh, clarity about what I, what I can focus on and what I have to focus on um, as an artistic leader. Um, we're doing a, a project um, uh, through innovation and strategy called uh, the Symboline Project. And it's an uh, episodic um, collage uh, version of Shakespeare's Symboline. Now I conceived that idea um, and I knew right away, I was like, boy, this, this might be cool. Let me talk to some really cool people about it to see if it's actually cool. And um, uh, in my first conversation with Scarlett Kim, who is the um, uh, creator and the uh, director and producer of it, uh, I was clear that it can't be me because I don't have the bandwidth to focus on really making that into something um, rich and imaginative. I just don't. Um, my bandwidth actually has to be spent in making sure that we have the things in place to make that happen. Um, and so I, with, you know, with extreme humility, because I can't tell you, I've been an artist my whole life. Um, uh, but, but my primary goal is to make sure that this team can do what they came here to do, which is um, shift the way that we do this work, this, you know, mechanistic, um, you know, a grinding machine that, um, that tends to focus on uh, the needs of, of of the patrons over the needs of, of the of the artists um, and and has not really really uh, find found a way to balance the two so that the artists are served and the work is served and the and the art the audiences receive the gift of of that work and so because of the thing that I'm trying to do which is center the artist um, my system is is has to have this sort of you know mini hierarchy but really what happens is um, they're sort of leading the charge. And, um, and I get to make sure that the container that they're doing that in is solid and supportive and continues to evolve and grow with the ideas that we're coming up with together. Yeah, awesome. It sounds like they have a, a lot of creative freedom in that, which I, I love. I love hearing about that. And I know we got a question from Facebook that Rob also had a question about, so I will let him ask that. Yeah, this is, a, I'm sure you've heard a version of this question. It's not a new one for, for Oregon Shakespeare's, particularly as it's diversified its programming and its ensemble. But the question, um, it came in from Barzan Akavan, a wonderful actor who's worked it. I saw him in Happiest Song plays last there and a couple plays here. And he asked, the way he asked the question, um, and I'll just put it in his words, because this is the question a lot of folks are asking. Um, how are you hoping to balance the idea of producing Shakespeare, the namesake playwright of the company, versus new work or modern plays. He says, as an immigrant artist to the US, I fell in love with the Bard's work through OSF. So I think that's always been a question. It's in the name. I mean, to digress for a moment, I, you're, Libby Apple, the artist director a few, few years ago, I once heard her say uh, that, that the whole name was wrong. 
that Oregon, it is Oregon, but a lot of the audience comes from elsewhere. Shakespeare's only about three out of the 11 plays and it's not a festival anymore. So the name of the festival is all, it's like a year round theater. But so the question about Shakespeare, and obviously this, this goes to some of the issues raised by, you know, the new statement and, and mission about centering artists of color and classics from outside the, or not even classics, but work that's not in the Western canon. Can you talk a little bit about this? A lot of folks are, are asking, you know, in, in, with good faith and, and other, 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 other lenses about this. So it's interesting because I opened our season this year with this, the uh, like biting our nails with a, a one woman show about a, um, this, you know, middle-aged woman warrior who um, helped in voting rights and really sacrificed her life for, you know, the freedom of other people. And um, I have received, you know, I, I think I get about 10 a week of emails and Facebook posts claiming that I don't like Shakespeare. Um, and to be honest with you, their fear about my feelings for Shakespeare is really not my problem. It's really their problem. And they have to really kind of figure out their own bias around whether or not I like it or don't like it or want to do it or don't want to do it. Um, in the meantime, my goal is to focus on my relationship with Shakespeare at the, and this, the intersection between my love of his language and story and my disdain for the oppressive systems that Shakespeare has been used to uphold around the world. You know, and I really do have to grapple with that because um, my point of entry with Shakespeare was, you know, an English teacher when I was in middle school and we read the whole play and I delivered a monologue for the very first time, didn't even know that that's what I was doing. And um, my, my in entree into theater is actually through, uh, through you know, Mercutio's Queen Mab speech. And, and so I, I don't know, I don't, have a, I don't have a moment where I'm reckoning with, you know, like whether or not I like it or don't like it. Um, the question is, is not whether to do it or not to do Shakespeare. The question is, is really at the heart of the artist who has their ear to the ground and can reflect on our circumstance and humanity through their work. If I listen to artists, I don't have to list, I don't have to think about banning the bard or, and I also don't have to center Shakespeare. You know, I, I can, I can just listen to what the artists are saying and, and, and I have to trust that there's still a need for his words to reflect our humanity and our current circumstance. And at the point of which there is no need, we'll know it, you know? Um, and, and it's been, you know, hundreds of years. So obviously we still have a need to understand ourselves through his words. Um, I think the work we will bring will, will be even, uh, will bring an even deeper appreciation for the classics as if you will, um, to open our, our eyes up to new ideas about who we are. The, the reason why we sit in the theater is to reflect and to witness humanity. And so if Shakespeare does that, then we'll do that. And if Shakespeare doesn't, then I'm telling you, it won't matter if OSF is still gonna do Shakespeare, we will be obsolete, right? So I think we have to think about it in terms of the impact, uh, the possible impact of word and story and language, and then the possible impact of artists that meets that. And that, that cataclysm that can happen when you allow the space for that to happen, when you don't codify that experience or dictate what has to happen on a stage or whose words have to be used. Um, and I'm very passionate about that. I, I, I feel like um, I'm gonna let other people worry about to do or not to do, right? And I'm gonna keep thinking about, um, is this relevant right now? You know, does this really resonate with us right now? 
who would this play uh, invite into our realm? Who would these words attract and, and remind that they are human and necessary and important? Um, you know, that's, that's, I want to think about that. Um, so I'm not going to, I'm not thinking about how I'm balancing because I, I don't know what that means. I'm an artist at heart. I'm going to think about, you know, does this give, is this impactful, you know, is, and, and is it more impactful if I, if I take on perhaps a, 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 one of the play on translations, is that more impactful? Does that help reflect who we are as humans? Does that tell us about our circumstance? more than some other, some, some you know, the, the, the folio versions of Shakespeare. I don't know, I, I think we have to see, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep centering the artist, centering the work of the artist, centering what I trust artists can do that nobody else can do. If you clear away all the mess, what you're, if, and, you, and you allow the artist to sort of come to a space of grace and rest and peace, the possibilities are endless. You know, and so that's what I want to do. I want to get the resources going so that people can do the work that they need to do to reflect who we are and not worry about balance and whether or not, you know, there's enough or too little. You know, if somebody sent me an email and they were like, well, you know, if you could just do Shakespeare, then, you know, then we know you like him. And I was like, yeah, and I'm going to do Shakespeare. Right. And then you're going to say I'm not doing enough. And then you're going to say, I'm not doing it right. And you're going to have, you're going to have a million opinions. So I'm not going to worry about you. I'm just going to yeah. keep going back to the well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know, I think Libby got the same kind of crap too, because they, but Bill definitely did. I think it was one season where they only had, only had two Shakespeare's rather than the usual three out of 11 or something. And um, they got some huge controversy. Like, it's like, you need to keep it in the brand. I, I it sounds like you're not going to, you're not going to sweat that too much. Uh, I was interested because one thing that's happened is it even that also predates Bill, but it was really supercharged under Bill Roush was OSF as a new play incubator, a new, not just new plays, new musicals. Um, one of the, one of the themes of a piece I wrote years ago was just how, how this mechanism could take on that much work, both the repertory and the repertoire and new work. Cause that's a, it takes, it's a different, different thing. I wonder if you just talk a little bit about, Obviously, there's going to be some new work. It sounds like there'll be new work being generated at OSF, and that's not a new thing for you. But I want to hear some more about what you, what what you. It's also not new for OSF. Right, that's, that's what I mean. Um, yeah, I have a, a board member who came to OSF. He started coming regularly because they saw a Cuban Revolution version of um, of uh, Julius Caesar back in the '80s, and that's they, they were like, "This is my place. I'm coming back." Um, so I feel like there's there has been a um, uh, a, a, a cr the creating of new out of the classics, the, the work of Shakespeare and this other idea of new work. And if I, I, I really do wish that our audience understood how important it is that they are responsible for um, nurturing some of the most important plays of the last decade. Um, I recently understood like how necessary their participation is and continues to be in, in, in the nurturing of new work. And so I get to the benefit of, of something that's already been, you know, that I, I, I'm just walking on a foundation, you know, that they've built, Libby did new work, Henry did new work, you know, Bill did new work, everybody's done it, right? So it's a part of the, the work of OSF, right? And yet um, 
we've spent the last like 30 years uh, selling this idea that there's this one idea that we're, you know, we're focused on one playwright and, and one kind of way of doing it. And most of my constituents have never seen that. Most of my constituents are here and they sit in rooms and they learn about people through new stories, you know, new plays. And, and it takes a lot to nurture a new play into existence. And, and, and my playwright friends will tell me that, you know, sometimes you write two or three plays that are garbage before you can get to something that's real. And that process for the playwright is necessary. And OSF is resourced in a way that um, requires us to continue to nurture that so that you could get the two or three out of the way and get to that one nugget. And we may never be the ones to produce the nugget. I wanna be a theater that's, that, that, that allows for the artists, the, the playwright, the devised, ensemble group, the, you know, the, the um, inspired designer that also has a dramaturgical focus. I, I wanna be the place where, where they can continue to develop that chop, that, that, um, that part of their work. And so, and I wanna do that because 70,000 people a year have participated in supporting the development of new work. And that's, and, and that's kind of a, a secret. I mean, you know, uh, Bill had a, 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 um, a giving uh, group called the Artistic Director Circle. And that's a tiny group of people who knew that their job was to support the development of new work. Um, and, and they did it, you know, all the way and indecent. And, you know, they, I mean, they did it with sweat. You know, um, uh, uh, I would like to expand that so that everybody's clear that that's what they're doing. Um, so that our audiences, no matter where they come from or how old they are, or what their interests are, recognize how important they are to the field because they're sitting in the room and they're supporting the development of something that's just coming to life in front of them. And that's that's a special thing to be a part of. And um, and I think we can do that. So I'm I'm going to expose that that's been the secret. You know, I'm going to I'm going to expose it and then um, and then run with it because I think it's important um, to OSF to our audiences and to the field. Speaking seventy thousand your... midwives. <laughs> uh, speaking of your your audience members, I'm just kind of curious because I've been thinking a lot about audience like audience surveys, especially over the last year and a half, and seeing people try to survey their audiences to see when they'll feel like coming back and when they'll feel comfortable like with COVID and all that. So I'm curious yep. how you you've been keeping tabs on your audience and how their reaction has been over the last year and a half as things is, have been fluctuating. You know, it's interesting because I, I have um, the, the loudest ones are the ones who are angry at us. Um, and, and I think they point their anger and fear towards us because um, there's no place else to go, right? Um, there's this, the, the thing you, the one thing, the common denominator with this COVID crisis is fear. And, um, and fear exposes your vulnerabilities in a way um, that sometimes make you angry. So I've received angry racist emails um, that are explicitly racist um, and sexist. Um, and, uh, and, and again, it's, you know, I'm gonna let that be their, their problem. The people who are silent are the ones that I'm, 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 I'm more curious about because there is a kind of, I don't know, there's a relative ambivalence in, in um, 
in uh, most theater going audience. There's a group of people who are like, I just want to come in and get my theater fixed and like get out of there, right? They're not, they're not going to write you an email. They're not going to engage in those ways. Um, and I want to make sure that um, that those people and the people who actually have been uninvited in uh, in the theater space, I want to make sure that those two groups of people are centered now. Um, and the people who are not enjoying themselves in, in the theater should probably spend a little bit of time doing something else. Um, I do believe that um, the unfortunate thing of the last 50 years of the development of this American experiment, uh, theater experiment, is the centering of a uh, middle-class uh, or affluent uh, white middle-aged audience. And so we start talking about, um, you know, we see white American theater and all the changes that a theater has to make. Um, but the, the big change that I think is, is, is uh, gonna have to happen across the industry is to really refocus the energy of our, our standard, sometimes mostly liberal theater going audience that wants their theater served in a very specific way. Um, that is, so I'm, as a freelance artist, um, I have descended into a theater space with my like, you know, ideas about what this play is going to mean and bring and my desire to help the playwright if I'm working on a new play, really bring forward their voice, their, their light, their vision for what this play is. And we're met with um, the, artistic, the artistic director who knows what they really are, have to do is grind down that work to make it palatable so that their audience can consume it. I, they're, they're, we're working at cross purposes here. Why bring this play if your audience can't take it, right? Why not bring your audience who can take it? Mm. Um, in the meantime, in my theaters, I've had people um, um, assault other people because they were laughing too loud or because they were, when, when, when kid moved his arm and his Apple watch before they had the tragic commie sign on there that, um, that you can press so that it doesn't light up. Mm -hmm. So he lifted, he was like folding his arms, the watch lit up and this older woman swatted him, right? Um, so why would he come back? Why would you come back into a theater in which you can be assaulted um, by somebody who has been centered and feels like they have the right to do that, right? So we do have to shift. We have to shift the way that we center these groups of people. And I, I get it, you know, it's capitalist society. It's, it's based in this, this consumerist idea, this benefactory um, notion that theaters can't sustain themselves unless you have a group of people who pay to play. Um, um, I don't know. I mean, um, I, maybe I'll be wrong at the end, and, you know, and, and uh, always have will suffer a tragedy. Um, but I, I actually think I'm right that um, the centering of, of an audience um, uh, that allows for them to be steeped in white supremacy within the walls of your theater um, has, cannot stand. You know, I, 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 this is why I say that I do not believe at all that theater changes hearts and minds. My audience taught me that, my audience here at OSF, because if that was the case, then I would not receive those emails and threats and, and racist taunts on Facebook, right? If that was the case, because if you've been coming here for 35 years, the thing that should have evolved because that if theater is a tool for that is your heart. Mm -hmm. What I now believe is that if you are in the process of evolving your thinking and expanding your mind, theater is a tool that you can use 
It can help with a, with a, a, a lot of other tools. It can help you continue to evolve. It can at least remind you why it's so important to evolve, but it is not the key. The key is you. You have to be the one that have to change. And I, what I'm not going to do is I can't spend any more time. I, you know, I read the Receive White American Theater document and every, at the end of every sentence, I was like, starts with the audience. I have to shift this audience. I have to, I can do all this work and change my 10 out of 12s. And I can, I can do all the things, the entire demands list are things that are, that I can actually do. Uh, but when I, when my colleagues say, well, we can't afford it. What they really mean is their audience won't take the change. So what they have to start with is, is starting to nurture and grow an audience that needs the demands, that requires that uh, to be a part of their theater. That's what you have to do. We spent, we spent you know, decades, anybody who's, um, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, so Gen Xers and, and younger have been uninvited, you know? Well, what's the point of that? If, if the boomers are, are not gonna be here forever, then we better start developing an audience that is going to be able to sustain us. And that means, you know, shifting and, and recentering. That's all. It, and, you know, it doesn't mean kick people out. You know, it means um, I grew up in the church. So, you know, in, in the church that I went to, you have these older women who were the mothers of the church. They weren't kicked out, you know, while they kept, you know, uh, inviting new people to the church. You know, they weren't kicked out. They were revered because they're the foundation. Um, but, but, what they also did was they were the ambassadors for the new, right? And I learned that. I learned that in, in the black church, that that's how you do it. And, and that's a model that, that's at the center. I'm not gonna say, tell my, my mother who's you know, in her seventies, like you can't come to the theater because I'm gonna focus on my, my cousin who's 27. I'm not gonna say that. I'm gonna be like, hey, how do I get both of you in the room together? you know, and also let my mother know that she's not the center of it, you know, that, that we're, we're going to locate a center that is bespoke to this moment. You know, Mintaki, I'm so, after hearing you and talking to you, I'm so excited to go back. Uh, I think I've mentioned before, I shouldn't play favorites, but I won't, I, but I would just say Oregon Shakes is one of my favorite places, period, <laughs> like, like uh, to go see theater, but also just to, to spend time in that town. Um, but I would say, it's been formative to me. I mean, one of the reasons I'm in this job is because of the years I spent uh, going up there, uh, just like every chance I could get. So I plan to come back there. And I just wanted to ask a little bit about, you mentioned earlier as uh, into economic terms, how Oregon Shakes is sort of an anchor for the, for the region. But I want to just ask this on a personal level, how, how, how is Ashland doing and how are you doing there as a, as a Ashlander or whatever, you know, how is it? Um, you know, my, um, I spent so much time in this home office during this <laughs> pandemic um, that I, I feel like I just got here and I was like, great, I'm gonna get to know this town. And I, and I, I had to learn this town in the same way that I'm, you know, connecting to everybody else through Zoom. Um, Ashland is a, a company town and, the, and the, one of the primary companies is theater. And there is this real relationship between the town and OSF. One of the things I think that people learned over the pandemic was there were people who come to visit Ashland and don't know anything about OSF. Mm. Um, so there are people who come for OSF and people who don't care about what we do. And, mm. um, and I think what we have to come back into is a balance. Uh, we opened this year because um, David and I felt like it was in, important, imperative that we open something. So we invested $125 million to open 
uh, uh, this beautiful one-person show, Fanny, uh, the life and music of Fanny Lou Hamer, and uh, a concert series to help the town. Um, and for a minute, you know, you could you could feel the bustling, and you know, you mm. the people that I I'm, I talked to were really happy and excited that you know there was this energy and movement. It's a town that re requires new groups of people to come through daily, you know, to to make sure that it's alive, you know. Um, uh, and and that bustling town is what we're trying to get back to every single year. There's also this other thing that you know I don't think. Um, I really understood until uh, the Alameda fire, which we just um, had the anniversary of that terrible fire that took out 24, 2,700 dwellings. Um, uh, you know, entire parts of the Rogue Valley were, were raised to the ground um, in fire. Uh, that uh, we are interdependent. You know, um, I could open my theater and invite 30,000 people to come a month, but where are they gonna stay? And who's going to serve them if you know the the working class community that burned to the ground? There's no housing, and so like it's it's. Well, I remember when we were like we're opening, and and a couple of restaurant tours were like, oh no, that's terrible because I don't have enough people to serve. And so you know, I was like, oh, don't worry, it's it's we're only inviting a number of people, this a certain number of people in our theaters a night. And this is when we were still under the COVID restriction. So everybody had to be six feet apart. I was like, well, you know, tell me what you need and, and let's work together, you know? So what you, what you learn in a crisis and a pandemic crisis is that you, the rebuild and the recovery, and we will be in a recovery. Ashland will be in a recovery. OSF will be in a recovery. The region will be in a recovery for at least the next five years. And what you learn is that you have to work together. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really excited about, you know, I had, I had a couple of innkeepers that were like, do you know that young people are traveling to Ashland? And I was like, I mean, yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> because I've been that, you know, that young person that traveled out of a city to get away from it to a place like this. Yeah. Um, you know, what the question is, how do you make sure that that, that young person, because uh, for some people young is anybody under the age of 60, um, <laughs> that that young person uh, wants to partake in all the things, the wineries, the, you know, the, the theater, the shops, the restaurants, you know, um, go to the museum at uh, SOU's campus, you know, but they want to take a, a part in everything. And that's going to have to be the goal of, of the entire uh, town and not just OSF. Yeah, I, I, I see, I see that both the large lift that's going to be involved in that for the town and for you, but also just the hope that that gives me to hear about it. Um, again, I'm, I'm getting curiously moved by this just because again, it's a theater very dear to my heart and theater in general is uh, dear to my heart. It's been a very hard, hard, hard Same. 18 months, Same. you know? So, um, <laughs> yeah. and it seems like, you know, in this moment of kind of re-emerging, kind of coming back, but having more, having question marks, I guess I'll, I'll, we, we should close in a second, but I want to just ask there's a Christmas show, a holiday show indoors, which is a kind of a first for OSF. Maybe not a first, but the first I can remember. And then you're going to announce a new season. I don't think you've announced a new season yet for next year, right? So you just give we, us a we teaser all, and that uh, will close out. Yeah, so uh, it's Christmas Carol and it's uh, <laughs> by the Coconuts. Um, uh, uh, Mark Bedard, John Tufts, and oh my God. Um, somebody's going to text me right now and give me the, the last name because... Um, I have a, a 10 month old and she's stolen my memory. Um, <laughs> anyway, this, uh, 
uh, it's going to be fun. It's, you know, it's like, it's, you take uh, the Marx Brothers and dinosaurs and, you know, um, and maybe a little bit of Scrooge and you mix it all together in a comedy. Um, uh, the, the, the primary predominant request I got when I first came to OSF was, are you going to do some sort of uh, into the season, um, into the, the calendar year holiday show, because there's holidays throughout a year and all kinds of different uh, people celebrate different holidays, but an end of the year, December-based holiday show. And mm -hmm. I was like, I mean, that sounds great. Um, what should that be? Um, so these amazing people are, you know, uh, Brent Hinckley, there it is. Yes, That's the yes, name. I and nobody texted me. I that, that was my brain rejogging itself. Um, uh, Great actor, actors gang guy I know from way back, yeah. Brent Hinckley. Yeah, go this, on. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> so it's going to be fun. You know, that's yeah. what I can say about it. It's going to be like, you know, let's poke a little bit of fun at this, you know, uh, what I said to the to the to the the guys um, as they were writing it is I always find it really interesting that uh, you go to you see it, the Christmas Carol in these theaters across mm -hmm. the country. And I don't think people know that it's, you know, a socialist play. I think they're like, oh, it's a tradition. No, but it's actually socialism, you know? <laughs> um, so I was like, I was like, let's, you know, that's what I'm interested in is like, how totally. do you unpack the fact that a play about, you know, making sure that impoverished people do not have to suffer at, at least on one day out of the year, yeah. um, uh, you know? <laughs> Uh, how do you how do you turn that into something that can be fun and impactful and um, and 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 help us learn again a little right, bit right. About, about ourselves a little bit more about our humanity so come if you if you can you know come come to Ashland and come see that show hey we're humble enough to know that all we're doing is really crossing our fingers you know okay. like okay. we hope to open it we do we hope to open it we hope that this COVID crisis wanes we hope that people. Um, you know, stop having to suffer under under this, you know, this pandemic crisis. And, and that's the primary hope. And if we can do a little bit of theater um, because some of this has waned, then I'm so grateful. I'm grateful, you know, so I'm gonna just remain grateful. Well, we're, we're, we're grateful to have you and your time today. Natalia, again, it's inspired, it's inspired me to, to talk. I haven't been able to see a lot of theater so just talking to, to people in the theater who are, who are making plans uh, has been what's kept me going this past year. And I hope our listeners and readers feel the same way. Again, I, I do hope to too. see you again soon. Yeah, I look forward to it. I do look forward to it. And good to see you, JR. Thanks, Nataki. All right. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Till next time. All right. Bye.